Last week we talked about how when God speaks, things happen. It always starts with God's word. And God says later on, let us make man in our image, us in our image. We're made in God's image. And we know that we worship a Trinitarian God, meaning we believe in one God, made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in a God that has been in perfect relationship, perfect fellowship with one another for eternity. And so if we're made in God's image, relationship is important to us as well. And God even goes on to say, it is not good for the man to be alone. So man was made to be in fellowship, and we all desire to belong. And this is a message on fellowship today. This is a personal message for me as I was thinking about fellowship. It brought me back to my youth, probably my junior high days. I was lonely oftentimes. Believe it or not, I'm an introverted person. I kept to myself a lot. A lot of thoughts floating around in my mind. I don't know if you can relate. And a lot of these things, I had my own dialogue going on in my mind oftentimes. And, but I longed to belong. I definitely had that longing in my heart. I like to be part of a group. I like to be, have some friends. And because of my father, my dad imparted to us a love for sports. And some of us may look for belonging in other activities, maybe friend groups, whatnot. We didn't have social media back then, and sports was my way of belonging. And we did judo, I swam, tried, tried basketball, baseball, all that stuff. But football is the only sport that embraced me. At Dana Junior High, my junior high school, the basketball coach didn't put me on the list. The baseball coach didn't put me on the list, but the football coach let me play. I'm like, great. And this is where I finally felt like I belonged to something bigger than myself. And I joined something that had, we, had, we shared a common purpose. We, I joined something that gave me significance. I felt kind of important because of it, right? I mean, as a youth, we're, uh, I'm grasping at anything to give me a little significance. It taught me certain values of working hard, mental and physical toughness, being accountable to the brotherhood, to your teammates. All, I mean, all these things were ingrained into me. You didn't want to let your coach and your teammates down. That was very important to me. I was finally part of a team, and God gave me a fellowship through football. And in, in, in an interesting sense, I could go almost around the country or even parts of the world and have immediate connection with a community of people. It's, just, it's amazing. There, there is a power there. And today we're talking about fellowship. It, the original, in the original language, fellowship is the word koinonia. Perhaps you've heard that word, koinonia. Koinonia carries the meaning of having a close association. Koinonia means that we have a mutual interest that we share. That means that we have a partnership. All right, and in essence, koinonia is centered around things that we share in common. All right, and so people develop fellowship around whatever we share, and these are some things that perhaps you experience fellowship around: shared interests, whether it's sports or certain kind of craft, shared life stage. Perhaps you're in junior high, high school, trying to raise a young family. Perhaps you're single. Perhaps you're in your retirement age. You know, those, those are things that we share in common. You can gather around people for those reasons. Shared vocation. You know, perhaps people in medicine, who are, others who are in coaches, teachers. We kind of kind of be able to understand one another so we could share a type of fellowship there. Shared ethnicity. We enjoy a certain type of food, certain type of culture that we don't have to explain to one another. We just kind of, oh, okay, I get it. That's a reason and a way to develop fellowship, shared identity in politics or causes, these things could bring people together. Even central figures, leaders, politicians, prominent people 
bring people together. And these are all legitimate types of fellowship. They are. I mean, it's powerful. I just explained to you how I could go almost around the whole country and fit in in certain groups. But these aren't supernatural forms of fellowship. And in the church, God has given us a supernatural fellowship. And I, unfortunately, at times, as I experience life, I think the secular world understands fellowship better than the church. So today, the goal is for the church, for Evergreen Church, to be clear what fellowship is about. And not just any fellowship. Not just any fellowship. But we want to answer one question today. One question. So if you're a note taker, write it down or log it down, log it into your memory here. What makes fellowship distinctly Christian? That's what we're interested in. It's fine to be part of other fellowship groups, but if you're part of the local church, you're part of a distinctly Christian fellowship. This is important because this is going to draw us together. This is going to bind and knit our hearts even that much more closer together. And we need to understand this because fellowship is a discipleship essential. Out of Acts 2.42, we've identified there's four discipleship essentials for disciples to grow. God's Word, which we preached on last week. Today's fellowship. The third one is commitment. And fourth is prayer. But today we're focusing on fellowship. And how do we define what fellowship is here at Evergreen Church? In this one simple phrase, Christ-centered relationships. Christ-centered relationships. And we're going to be out of 1 John. The Apostle John is going to teach us what fellowship is, is centered in. 1 John chapter 1. And as you're turning there, this is towards the end of your Bibles here. If you have your Bible handy or if you look into your phone to read 1 John with me. The Apostle John, he's perhaps Jesus' best friend while he lived on earth. Apostle John was in his 90s now. He is the grandfather of the church. All the apostles are gone now. They've all been killed. Now, John went through a lot of trials, but God providentially has allowed him to live into his 90s where he wrote 1 John. And the grandfather of the church sees a problem happening. There's a mystical cult that was uh, uh, surfacing in the church, and basically they're drawing people out of the fellowship of the church. In essence, they're promoting and proclaiming a false Jesus, a false gospel. This is a problem. So for, for John writes 1 John to establish what Christian fellowship is all about. So please rise, 1 John chapter 1. I'll be reading out of 1 through 10. Okay? Our spiritual grandfather speaks to us through 1 John. John writes, What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifest, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announce to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your word. I pray Your Spirit will allow me to preach Your word faithfully. I pray your spirit will give us a clear idea of what it means to have Christian fellowship today so that we will love your son more. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So I'm going to give you the roadmap here for as we uh, journey through this sermon today. Christian fellowship 
four points today. Christian fellowship is centered, is Christ-centered because we share the same Savior, number one. Number two, we share the same family. Number three, we share the same joy. And fourthly, we share the same light, all right? We share the same Savior, family, joy, and light. Central figures, these are prominent leaders, charismatic people, uh, men and women are able to attract many people. And they can unify many people. This is why we love to, we, we're captured and we're during the presidency, we, we have a strong conviction that the right type of leader could unify large groups of people. Therefore, one way to dissolve fellowship is to attack the central figure. You get rid of the central figure, and fellowship is dissolved. And Satan understood this. Satan's plan was to attack the church's foundation, Jesus Christ. We are about Christ, and Satan was about attacking the person of Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? And he used this group called the Gnostics. This was the mystical cult that I was talking about earlier. The Gnostics believed, in essence, spirit is good. Things of the Spirit is good. And this is found in, in birth in Greek philosophy, which was somehow merged into Christianity. So they believe that the Spirit is good, but all matter, any, uh, all flesh is evil. Okay, So in essence, they believe that they're, they're teaching that Jesus only came in the Spirit, as if he was some kind of ghost or phantom that floated on the earth. You saw him, but he wasn't really there in the flesh. And... Therefore, they believe that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh. And so John, as you notice in the first point here, Christian fellowship, I'm going to go to the first point here. Christian fellowship is Christ-centered because we share the same Savior in Christ. Savior in Christ. If you, if you look with me to First John here, what do you notice? There's a lot of sensory language here. Right here. See, touch, right? Let me just read some of these things. What was from the beginning? What we have heard? What we have seen with our eyes? What we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life? The word of life is Jesus Christ himself. And John makes it very clear. He actually had firsthand experience of hearing his words that came out of his mouth. He mentions it twice. He's seen and looked at. And this word looked at has this, carries this meaning of a long gaze. I've stared at him for three intimate years. John is also saying, which we touched as if I, I've groped him, I felt him, I've hugged him, I've seen his tears. John had a first row seat at Jesus' life. He was Jesus, like I said, one of Jesus' best friend, if not his best friend while he was on earth. And he got to experience life. Jesus personally called John into the ministry. Jesus personally trained John to be an apostle. Jesus intimately shared his life with John, right? And John was able to see Jesus' death and on the third day, his resurrection. He's able to experience all that. And so, basically, John is attacking this lie that Jesus never came in the flesh. John is saying, no, I've seen him. You know what I'm saying is right, is what John is saying. John 1, 14, from the gospel, says the word became flesh. Jesus Christ became flesh. And Jesus did come in the flesh. And then also... John reaffirms that Jesus is God himself. Look, turn with me to verse 2 here of 1 John chapter 1. And the life was manifested, and we have seen, there it is again, and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. That's talking about Christ, which was with the Father and, and was manifested to us. This is not the only time that John talks about this. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and 2, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. Christ is the Word, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In essence, Jesus is God, uh, John is establishing as well. In no unclear terms, John has taken every opportunity to establish who Jesus is. Jesus is fully God, or as some of my friends says, truly God and fully man, or truly man. He was both. He was both. He was attacking this lie 
that Jesus never came in the flesh. Now, I want to ask you a question, church family. This is fundamental theology. It's quizzing you here, okay? Just in your mind, come up with an answer here. When I ask this question, why did Jesus Christ need to be fully God and fully man to be our Savior? Why? I know you believe this. If you're in Christ, you believe this. But why did he have to be fully divine, fully God, and fully man in the flesh? Why? Just remember these here for future use so you can explain it to yourself and to others. Number one, a man needed to die to redeem mankind. Meaning goats and cows and sheep are not able to redeem human beings. An actual human being needed to die to redeem another human being. That's one. Fully, fully man. Number two. How many Christians are there on the earth? Can you count them all? How many Christians or redeemed people in the church are you going to see in heaven someday? We can't count that. We don't know. Someday we'll know, but countless people are saved. So the second answer to why did Jesus have to be fully God and fully man is this. Only an infinite being could redeem countless Christians. Think about that. Jesus is infinite. It took a man who's infinite, who has infinite qualities to die and redeem countless Christians. Makes sense, doesn't it? Theology does make sense, you know, just, but it helps us in growing our and our understanding of why things had to be the way they, they were. And central figures come and go. I mean, presidents, kings, pastors, rulers, monarchs, they come and go. Pharaohs, Caesars, czars, emperors, they come and go. History tells us they come and go. But Jesus Christ, the one we share is our Savior, our central figure, is with us forever. And he guarantees our salvation, our resurrection, the hope of glory. So this is one of the reasons why we have true fellowship. Christian fellowship is because we share a, a common Savior. Okay, that's point number one. And as I was studying this, studying, preparing for the sermon, something came to my mind, and, and one of the things that came to my mind is that how Americans are lonely. This loneliness, loneliness came to mind, and I started studying on this, and I came across this study. This study said that 63% of men and 58% of women feel lonely. It's interesting how men are more lonelier than women. It says that 36% of Americans say they felt more lonely than usual during the pandemic. And in this Harvard study, Harvard University study, actually pointed out two groups of people. Which I found interesting, and I'll share that with you right now. This Harvard study pointed out young adults are the loneliest group, according to research, that 61% of young people ages 18 to 25 feel lonely or feel frequently lonely almost all the time or all the time. And 43% of these young adults had elevated feelings of loneliness during the pandemic. Young adults. And then the other group that this Harvard study pointed out is mothers with small children, with young children, mothers with young children. This is more than 50% of mothers reported serious loneliness. And 47% of these mothers with young children said that their loneliness increased during the pandemic. So loneliness is an issue here in our nation. And I wouldn't doubt that that's an issue in our church family as well. And they had a solution. Interesting, the secular world had a solution and a really great observation, I thought. They called this the age of hyper-individualism, where everyone's basically private, keeps it themselves, does their own thing. You could do what you do. I'm going to do what I do. And the solution that they had is this. We must restore a commitment to each other and the common good. Community. (laughs) Even the secular world said, we need to be part of a community. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. So our second point that we're going to talk about is this. Christian fellowship is Christ-centered because we share the same family in Christ. We're part of a spiritual family. The Gnostics, going back to that mystery cult, said that the true God is unknowable. God is an impersonal force, impersonal being. You know, and Satan, 
desires for Christians to be isolated, to feel alone, to feel not part of a, a family or a group. And many professing believers, I think, subscribe to this Gnostic thought and where they see God as cold and impersonal. God is there, but he really doesn't know what's going on with me. He doesn't know how I feel. I don't think he really cares what's going on with me. My struggles, my hurts. He doesn't necessarily understand how lonely I might be feeling right now. As if God created the universe and just backed off. Right? Some of us may think and approach God in this way. But God is more than a Savior. And let's, look at, let's look at verse 3 here. God is much more than a Savior. Verse 3 says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you, may, you too may have fellowship, koinonia, with us, other Christians. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with us, other Christians. Fellowship with the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says right here that we are intense fellowship with God. God is very personal. God is very intimate with his children. And I want to give you a picture of how intimate he is by going turn to John 17. John 17, the gospel. John, turn to your left. John 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And Jesus is about to enter into the most intense moment of his life. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be betrayed by his closest friends. He's about to be tried and tortured and eventually go to the cross. And this is what he prays for. John 17, verse 20. John 17, verse 20. Look what he says. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the, the, the 12 disciples only, but for those who believe in me through their word. That's us 2,000 years later. Every single Christian who believed through apostolic teaching. Look what he prays for. He's praying for you and me. 2,000 years ago, he had you and me in mind, meaning Jesus. God had you and me in mind as he's praying right now. Very personal. He does care. He does understand. Verse 21, that they may, be, they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We're family. We're one, our Lord says. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. We get to be so close to one another and to God just as Jesus and the Father are close. Let's keep reading. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them. Comma, look, look how powerful this next portion is. Even as you have loved me. Do you hear what Jesus is praying for us 2,000 years? He was thinking about you and me during this time. He's praying to the Father and saying that I want to be part with them. They're with us. And I desire for you, Father, to love them with the same quality of love that you have for me. That's incredible. There's nothing impersonal about this. God knows you and me. God loves you and me. This is very intimate. This is very personal. God understands what you're going through right now. We're part of this same family. 1 John 3 wants to see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we will be called children of God. Isn't that amazing? We're part in, in, of a love relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And not only that, we're in relationship with one another. It's a family. It's a family. This is a true family. And God's family is diverse. I remember going back to my own mind uh, from my teammates to players and coaches I played uh, with and coached with and coached for. We didn't have much in common on the surface. We came from diverse backgrounds. 
All around the country. Some people come from the West Coast, from the Deep South, from the Midwest, from the East Coast. They're from everywhere. Some from even Samoa, other parts of the world. I had black teammates, whites, Hispanics, Polynesians, a few Asians, not many, a few Asians that are around. And we all came from perhaps poor backgrounds or rich backgrounds and everything in between. Some people were from the city. Some people were from the country. I mean, deep country. And we came together for one purpose. And we developed an intense fellowship around the game. Like I said, we could call people from 20 years ago and like, yeah, I remember that time. There's an immediate connection, immediate fellowship that we, we share. But the Christian fellowship is supernatural, as I said. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to read this portion for us. The Apostle Paul says something similar. It says this, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. One body, one team, many different members, very diverse. For by one spirit, this is where it gets supernatural, for by one spirit, God's own spirit, we were all baptized, brought into one body. See that? Whether Jews or Greeks, look at the diversity, whether slaves or free, rich or poor, whatever your ethnicity, we were all made to drink of one spirit, the spirit of God. Supernatural. Verse 14, for the body is not one member, but many. It's very clear here. We're part of a family. And I know all of us at times may feel a certain sense of loneliness. But I would encourage you, church families, meditate on the intimacy of this. Meditate on the truth that is talked about here. How God is very personal. Let the truth of God transform your mind on how you see things. And brothers and sisters, let's act in accordance that we are family. Let's open up our lives to one another. Let's reach out to one another. Let's open and be share and share our hurts, our joys, our struggles with one another. The more we understand that we're part of this intimate fa- family, the more we'll act like it. True. Even right now, you may be sitting there, Pastor, I'm part of this church, but I feel lonely. True, I definitely acknowledge that, but let's move from there and let's come alongside one another knowing what the truth of Scripture says, that we share the same spiritual family. That's where our fellowship is rooted in. We're part of family here. And in football, things were very clear. The fellowship was very obvious. Why? You may ask, all you got to do is come watch well, we all talked football with one another. We studied football together. We practiced football together. We dreamt about football together. We talked about that with one another. We sacrificed for football together. It was a struggle. It was painful at times. And we played the football game together. Why? You know why? Because we shared the same joys. The same things gave us joy. And in the Christian life, one of the reasons why we have fellowship is this, is that we share the same joy. Fill in the back. We share the same joy in Christ. In verse 4 right here, Paul writes at a 1 John chapter 1, Paul writes, I mean, John writes, excuse, excuse me, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Christians, we find our greatest joy and satisfaction in Christ. Amen. John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Our joy comes from our union with Christ. Jesus is our source of joy. And since Jesus is our source of joy, the same things that give him joy are the same things that give us joy. Verse 4 says, Our joy may be made complete, to be made full. And what this is implying also is that there's different levels of joy as a Christian. It's fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, right? Peace. I mean, we could grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We could grow in our level of joy as we follow Christ. And what increases our joy? 
It's the same things that Jesus rejoices over. And let's take a look at John, Acts chapter 2 here. I want to give you a picture of that, an example, an illustration from the early church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and 47 here. What did the early church fellowship around? What did the early church uh, participate in? And what gave the early church joy? Let's take a reading and I'll just point out a few things. Acts 2.42, this is a picture of the joy that they experienced. They, they, that's the church, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, God's word, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That's talking about the Lord's Supper and commitment to the local body. And to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together connected, united, they were one and all, and had all things in common. Look at what they did. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind. They thought the same. In the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They're eating love feasts, love meals together. They were taking their meals together with gladness, a lot of joy, there it is, and sincerity of heart. They love being with each other. They love studying the scriptures together. They love praying together. They love fellowshipping together. They love being committed to one another. And look, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. What gives Christians joy? The same things that Christ loved and don't we all rejoice when someone comes to Christ? God was adding to their numbers day by day. Don't we rejoice when we see Christians growing in Christ-likeness? Right? Don't we all rejoice being together, worshiping together, fellowshipping Sunday together after service? Don't we gain joy when we see every tribe, every tongue, every nation come to Christ? These are the things that are on the heart of Christ. These are the things that grow joy in us. And conversely, the same things grieve us. Don't we grieve when people do not come to Christ, when they reject Christ? Don't we grieve when we experience backslidden, unrepentant Christians? That's hard. That's hard in the body. Don't we grieve when there's disunity amongst the brotherhood and sisterhood of Christ? We share the same joys, and which leads to the same interests. We do the same things. We're about the same things. The same desires, the same mission. We're about the Great Commission. This grows our fellowship because we pursue the same things. We share the same things that bring us joy. Isn't that interesting? Very, very natural. And in, in the secular world, you don't necessarily have to define these things as clearly. It's just understood. I'm joining this group because of this. This is what we do. In the church world, I think we need to be much more clear. Because there's a variety of activities that we could be about. There's a variety of things that we could invest in. What are we about? And in football, or I have friends who are practicing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and other martial arts and things like that, I think there's a known and understood standard that we all have to live by. There's a certain work ethic that you bring to the team. There's a certain toughness, a certain level of commitment that you have to the team or to your dojo. This is, this is what we do. There's a certain standard. How we treat one another, it's just understood. This is how you treat your teammates. This is how you treat your coaches. And in Christian fellowship, you know, Christian fellowship is Christ-centered because we share the same light, fourth and final point, light in Christ. The Gnostics, that mystical cult, they believe in something called dualism. Dualism is this. Since the spirit is what matters, it doesn't matter if you're sinning in your body. You could just, Christians, you could do whatever you want. This is what some of the people started believing. This is what started drawing people out of the fellowship. And today, what uh, theologians may call, some, uh, call this idea is hyper-grace. Hyper-grace meaning, you know what, God's forgiven me. He understands. It's fine. God understands if I sin. No, no, he doesn't. It's not okay. It was so serious that he had to die on the cross. 
And I believe John is attacking this idea here in verse 5 here. He says this, this is the message, back to 1 John 1, this is a message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. God is light, meaning this is a metaphor, his perfect holiness and his righteousness, and that God is, represents and is the author of all truth. But look what verse 6 says. If we say that we have fellowship with him, we have koinonia, we have partnership with him, I'm married to God, and yet walk in the darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. Walk in the darkness. This is a consistent, willful pattern of sin. I mean, you know you're sinning, but it's kind of like God is okay with it. I'm okay with it. I've been forgiven already. John is saying right here, light and darkness do not mix. In the sanctuary at night when we come in here, sometimes it's, it's pitch dark. And I turn one of the knobs and boom, light is turned on and the darkness is gone. Light and darkness cannot exist. That's impossible. It's like oil and water. They do not mix. And, 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 and to be filled with error and sin we cannot say we're partnering with God with that intimate level that we just talked about earlier. Here's an example of that. In 1 John 2.9, John says this, The one who says he is, a, he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. So if you're, act, if you're okay with hating another Christian, that's not in the light. That's an example of walking in darkness. But God, you understand what he or she did to me. No. That's not acceptable, the Lord is saying. Our Father sets the standard. He gives us the light. And we cannot coexist with sin. But verse 7 here says this, But if we walk in the light, that's just a consistent pattern of righteousness. A consistent, not a perfect pattern, but a consistent pattern of wanting to live with God and live as God would have us. As he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We have partnership with one another. We're in the same family with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses, cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light. Walking in the light. Let me give you a, a metaphor or an illustration for this. I did a little study on the earth here this week as well. When you look at the earth from the North Pole... The earth rotates in a counterclockwise direction. This is why we have 24 hours. Of, it makes up a day. Part of it's in the day, part of it's in the night. So in the night, that means that our land is on the shadow side of the sun. We're facing away from the sun. In the day, like right now, our land is facing the sunlight and we experience light. So in order to be in the light constantly, what do you have to do if the, if the earth is rotating in a counterclockwise direction? You have to travel in a clockwise direction to stay in the sun the whole time. So if you want to walk in the light in your own lives, we have to be countercultural. We can't be going with the current of the world. And by the way, as Pastor Kenny Water reminded me, Jesus says also in 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised if the world hates you. This is significant now. This is a commitment to walking in the light. Are you understanding this? Do we understand this? That walking in the light, walking in the light is very countercultural to the way the world turns and the way the culture is going. And by the way, there's going to be opposition, the Lord says. But guess what? He didn't, give, he didn't leave us alone. This is why we need one another. This is why we need to know that we're part of a family. And we need to know that there's others that are living with this type of commitment to Christ. Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 of 1 John chapter 1 says this. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We all know any of us who have come to Christ, we confess our sins originally. But also, as you live the Christian life, the more you live the Christian life, you know that life isn't perfect. The Christian life isn't perfect. We all stumble. All of us stumble. All of us are tempted. All of us are angry at times. All of us are tired at times. All of us don't say an unkind word at times. Right? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, 
He, God the Father, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a practice that we're called to do, to confess our sins first to God. And look, God, the way that the Father is described, He's a loving Father. He's not going to throw lightning bolts at you. You confess your sins to Him. He's going to come alongside you and say, Look, I forgive you. I forgive you. And I want to make one thing very clear. Once you are in Christ, you're in Christ. Just because you sin doesn't mean you haven't been forgiven, okay? Christ's death and resurrection covers our past, present, and future sins. We're, we're in the family of God. But think about this as familial forgiveness. Parents, or sons and daughters, have you sinned against your parents before? Have you disobeyed them before? Have you spoken disrespectfully to them before? Of course. Of course we've done that. Does that put you in jeopardy of not being a son or daughter anymore? Of course not. Of course not. But what does saying, Dad, Mom, I'm so sorry, what, what does that accomplish? You know what that accomplishes? That draws in the intimacy that you have with your parents, that, that, that fellowship, that relationship, that feeling gets restored. So as a Christian, God has already forgiven us. However, when we agree with God, God, you're right. I read your word. It's repro- reproving me. It's correcting me. I'm so sorry. My, the way of thinking, the way I've been talking to my friend here is wrong. I'm so sorry. I agree with you. We're already in the family of God. Amen. But what it does is draws us closer into that intimate love relationship. That feeling gets restored. I'm close with God now. But also, I believe, not only do we confess our sins to the Father and to God, but to one another. James 5.16 says this, confess your sins to one another. All right? You got to understand, a privatized life disrupts fellowship. Even Harvard understood that, hyper-individualism. Even Harvard study understood this. A privatized life disrupts fellowship. Yeah, I understand some things are private, but your hyper-privatization is what affects fellowship in the church. There's a danger if we do not confess sins to one another. And I came across this book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer wrote this book called Life Together. Bonhoeffer is a, is a German Christian who was executed by the Nazis in World War II. Okay, and Bonhoeffer had this profound... Uh, attraction to fellowship. And he writes about this in his book in in terms of confessing sins. And I'm going to read a section of it for us, and I think it's going to make sense. He writes, Why is it often easier for us to acknowledge our sins before God than before another believer? God is holy and without sin, a just judge of evil and an enemy of disobedience. But another Christian, another brother or sister is sinful, as we are, knowing our own experience of sinning. Should we not find it easier to go to one another than to the holy God? Bonhoeffer is saying, why can't we confess our sins to another brother or sister who could relate to our sin rather than to go to the holy God who cannot relate to sin? Look what he says. He gives a warning. But if that is not the case, we must ask ourselves whether we are often deceiving ourselves about our confession of sin to God, whether we have not instead been confessing our sins to ourselves and also forgiving ourselves, meaning I'm confessing this to you, God, but really the confession is to yourself and you're the one forgiving yourself. And is not the reason for our numerous relapses and for our feebleness as Christians to be found precisely in the fact that we are living from self-forgiveness and not from real forgiveness of our sins. Self-forgiveness can never lead to the break with sin. And he asks this question. You might be asking this to yourself right now. Then who can give us the assurance that we are not dealing with ourselves, but with the living God in the confession and the forgiveness of our sins? What assurance do we have then that we're actually dealing with our sins? Look what he writes. God gives us his assurance through one another. The other believer breaks a circle of self-deception. 
those who confess their sins in the presence of another Christian know that they are no longer alone with themselves. Individualism, privatization, they experience the presence of God in the reality of the other. See, God's given us one another to help us in our Christian life. If you're harboring a sin that you've been stumbling over and over and over again, and you're, perhaps you're repeatedly you're confessing it to the Lord, your brother or sister is a tool for you to help break that chain. For a couple reasons, because someone asked me one time, well, how do I know this person is restored? Well, a good sign is if they're confessing their sins. What that does is that it acknowledges before man that, yes, I've acknowledged this before God. And that other brother or sister could keep you accountable as well. This is serious business now. This is taking Christianity to the level that God has called us to. See, the sin is the enemy of fellowship. It loves darkness, does it not? It's like mold uh, flourishing in the darkness. Sin is just like mold. Mold cannot grow in the sunlight. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, as long as I am by myself when I confess my sins, comma, everything remains in the dark. But when I come face to face with another Christian, the sin has, come, has been brought to the light. Brothers and sisters, let's take our relationships to another level. I get it. Not all things, our struggles are appropriate, appropriate necessary to share with everybody. But who is that brother or sister that comes to mind that you're close with? We should be able to speak to them about our sins and our temptation. Do you have somebody like that? Do you speak to your wife and your spouse that way, your husband that way? Sin. That's what we're here for. This is why we believe that sin and suffering needs to be handled in the life of the local church for the most part. That's why we're investing so much in biblical counseling. We want to raise up an army of people. We want to raise up a culture of us counseling one another in our interpersonal relationships. This is why we're praying that our life groups, we have genuine sharing that takes place in the life groups. It's, it's honest. It's safe. We're here to support one another. This is why we're moving our life groups to be more relationship-based so we could share and pray for one another. And this is a great place to share and confess your sins to one another. Think about it. Unconfessed sins affect fellowship in a negative way. The hidden sin retards intimacy in relationships. Closeness is compromised. You, you can't grow any closer because I'm, I'm holding back from you, friend, brother, sister. Think about your closest relationships right now. If you have to withhold any information from them, that means your, your relationship level of intimacy is capped at that point. The one that you can share openly about anything, boom, and it's mutual, that's closeness. There is no more loneliness there. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a supernatural, gospel-filled, grace-filled relationships with one another. Christ-centered relationships are what we're talking about. Perhaps you don't have somebody like that at Evergreen. Well, come speak to one of the pastors. Come speak to one of the leaders. That's why we're here. We'd love to walk with you. But like we said before, in developing a culture of discipleship, you know the culture is growing in discipleship when the brotherhood and sisterhood are doing it amongst each other. We're here to help. Leaders, pastors, leaders are here to help, guide, direct. But when it's happening in your day-to-day -day life, now we're smoking, now we're cooking in fellowship and discipleship. In conclusion here, church family, I want to say this. Football gave me an intense fellowship. As a youngster, it gave me uh, identity, gave me purpose, it gave me a sense of belonging. But I realized it wasn't enough. There's no way football could have given me something that the gospel only could give me. I needed to be in fellowship with God. You need to be in fellowship with God. And how you could be in fellowship with God is this, acknowledging Jesus Christ as your creator. Confess your sins to him, Lord. 
you're right. I've sinned against you and others. And also you trust in him. Lord, I know you, you put on human skin, lived a perfect life, and went to the cross and took my punishment that I deserve. And you died. I believe you did this for me so that you could pay for my sins. Friends, do you believe this? And also, I believe, Lord Jesus, that you resurrected on the third day. You're alive. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to commit to following you as my Lord and Savior. This is how you come into fellowship with God and with one another. This is the gospel, the good news. And this is Communion Sunday. Every first Sunday of the, of the month, by God's grace, we get to practice the symbol of fellowship, which is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's table has been set up. And this is where we could remind ourselves. God has given us a symbol to remind ourselves that we are in fellowship because we share the same Savior, Jesus Christ. Pastor Dan will take us through this in a second. To remind ourselves that we are part of the same family of God. And to remind ourselves that the same joys we share with one another. And finally, that we share the same light. Communion is a reminder of this. And if you are in Christ, this is for you. Isn't God great? Isn't God great? We are in fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and with one another. This is what makes Christian fellowship distinctly Christian. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for how you clearly talked about what fellowship is in the center of fellowship through John. I thank you for his heart for the church, how he grandfatherly took care of the church and talked to us about fellowship. I thank you for how our fellowship is deep, personal, intense, because of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we get to fellowship with you, God, the holy God of all. We get to call you Father. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, that we will respond in an appropriate manner, that this week and throughout our lives we'll meditate on the depth of our fellowship with you, Lord, and with one another. We'll think about these truths, and these truths will shape our attitude. This will affect our loneliness. This will affect how we reach out to others who we seem to think are lonely because we love them, because we care about them, because they're family. I pray you move our church to be hospitable with one another, that we will open up our lives, we'll enter into joys and suffering with one another. And Father, I pray the fruit of this is that we will be confessing our sins to you and to one another because we want to walk in the light. Thank you, Jesus. What a great Savior we serve. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.